You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. This will be James chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 2 through 4. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. Someone says is that they, yeah, that's right. All you can see is Darren and the bell. Perfect. That's what you need to be seeing. So hopefully everyone, we're still going live there. If not, hopefully it's recording. We can post it later. So James, uh, I say the grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God does stand forever. I'm on a streak of like, I don't know, since June of 2015, I've said that after, huh? 16. I've said that after, so I didn't want to have this be the time I failed to say that the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So this morning for our junior sermon time or our homily, I kind of call them junior sermons, uh, is I want to look at this opening of this letter from the book of James. Now, James is a book that's kind of, it gets the rap of being um, the book about good deeds. Uh, faith without works is dead is kind of the famous. And so if anyone knows anything about the book of James, they know that it says faith without works is dead. And so that kind of becomes, I don't know, all we know about the book of James. And it is a, it is there in the end of chapter two. It's the last section of chapter two. It's a very important to, to James's kind of proverbial book. I mean, there's lots of Proverbs. It's very, there. he covers a lot of topics in um, in the book of James in his in his letter, but a theme that runs through the book is this theme of steadfastness under trials, and we've seen it right here at this opening. Right, he's talking about the steadfastness that should be there uh, in, in in times of trials. Let me pull that up here so you can look at it. Um, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So there's this steadfastness that is to be happening in the times of trials. But it's it's throughout the book. And so you can look with me at the end of, of James. This is the there's only five chapters. You can read the whole book of James today. You can do it. Um, positive. And so then, but this last section, one of the last sections at the end of the book is James chapter five. Verses seven through nine, he's saying, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So he bookends his letter with these ideas of endurance, patience, a steadfastness in the midst of suffering while you're waiting for, for the end of it all. Uh, James is, is focusing his patience and the steadfastness upon an eschatological hope. Now, 
if you're new to uh, First Christian Church or you're just watching this, you think I just made a word up, eschatological hope. But this is a, a word I like to throw around and let me throw up on here for you. Not throw up on here. That sounds terrible. <laughs> let me put on display for you. hope you like that. <laughs> this, this slide. I <laughs> mean, put this up for you. <laughs> a slide about what, what I mean by eschatology. The, the eschaton is the end times, the final state. So eschatology is the study of the end times. Uh, very uh, just an interesting field of study within theology, uh, eschatology, but then something that's eschatological is, is having to do with the end times, having to do with the end of it all. And so when I say that James's uh, patience and steadfastness is focused upon an eschatological hope, it is, he's, he's basing it not upon a hope of, of what may happen in this life, but, but a hope on what is one day to come in the final day at the final time that is his eschatological hope he's that's where he's basing what he where this steadfastness where this hope is to come from that is on this future state he has this there's this day of reckoning that is coming the judge is on his way and so the hope that a christian has is a hope and the steadfastness that's produced in their life comes from an eschatological hope, a hope of, of the one final state. So back to our text that we started with this morning, we don't know the specific audience that James is writing to. He says, if you see in verse one, not up here, but in your own Bible, you can see that he's writing to the diaspora, the, 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 the scattering of, of, of the church, but he's trying to the Jewish church. He's writing to the, the church there. He's saying that the diaspora spread out throughout this region. He's writing to many different Christians, believers in Jesus that are scattered about and they're dispersed partially. We know because of a verse like um, Acts chapter eight, uh, verse one talks about this, um, that this, the martyrdom of Stephen is Acts chapter seven. We have the first Christian martyr. He's stoned to death for preaching a, a gospel sermon, essentially. And then at that point, the church scatters and begins to spread the gospel. And so we know that they're, they're scattering and they are encountering persecution. They are encountering real suffering. And so James is writing to these people in the midst of real suffering. And he's saying to them to count it all joy when they meet various, various kinds of troubles. So if this is a congregation or a gathering that's reading this letter, who's experiencing all these different kinds of trials, how do you start a letter to them? And James starts it with a command, a command <laughs> to count it joy. How insensitive. <laughs> I mean, typical, isn't that just like, I mean, you know, just you know, here I here we are going through all these hard times, and then we're just told to 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 count it joy. How how can James say such a thing? Is he just being insensitive? Is he just ignoring all that they're going through? How is he telling them to count it all joy? Well, he does. He calls them brothers, meaning brothers and sisters. That that Greek term there means mean can mean both genders. That they're the count it all joy Christian church when you meet various kinds of trials. Now, I don't want to fly over that because it's important to know why such a claim can be made. James is not just trying to ignore the suffering. 
you know, pretend like it doesn't exist. You know, it is not real. Um, like it isn't something that's really happening to them. He's not saying count of joy by just becoming oblivious to the hard reality around you. He's, they are meeting various kinds of trials. He's admitting that when you meet various trials, so he's not just saying ignore it, but he also isn't just saying, which is popular in our world today. Oh, just try to find the silver lining. He's not, you know, okay. So yeah, lots of bad things are happening, but it could be worse. Well, for some of them, it can't get, I mean, some of them are dying. So to say it could get worse is kind of like, well, no, actually it's as far as it goes for things in this life. Um, this is as bad as it can get. So he's not saying just ignore it. He's not saying just find the silver lining. He's, he's admonishing to count it joy entering into various trials because of the incredible value that those trials are producing in them. It's like gold being refined by the fire. You know, gold comes out of the ground with all these impurities. And so the way that they purify it, this is, this is the illustration Peter uses in the first chapter of his first letter, first Peter one, he, he sp specifically talks about your faith being of greater worth than gold, which is purified, refined by the fire. He's, he's using this same kind of language that this suffering is like the fire that the gold undergoes. And that's how it is, is, it's, it is refined. It is made into more pure gold that this trial, this suffering is producing a steadfastness. It is refining of this faith. It's like, if you think about, um, Oh, you can imagine possibly a movie scene of, of, of someone running for a life raft. Um, you know, they're trying to get somewhere. They're trying to, to get a hold. There, there's a giant flood or something. And it's just, it's, it's knee deep water or getting way steep, getting deeper. And they're running to get to the life raft. And, but they brought along with them all of these trinkets, all of these things. They've got all these things from their house, all these things they're trying to save as they're trying to run to get to the lifeboat. And on the way, a tree branch falls down and knocks some stuff out of their hand and what a terrible, you know, and so the person's upset that this tree branch knocked down and, and I dropped some of my stuff and then they, they step in a hole. They didn't realize and more things fall out of their hands. And, and by the time they get to the boat, they've encountered so many various traumas and sufferings and difficulties that they've ended up with nothing in their hands, but because they are there with empty hands, they're actually able to grab a hold of the lifeboat and get away. And so these, these trials, these difficulties were, were, were in a very real way opening their hands up to grab what really matters. And so James is, I, I, this is, this is the, the imagery. This is what James is getting across. If there are circumstances that cause you to free up your hands, no matter how difficult those circumstances are, you will be glad for them when they free you up to grab that which is most necessary. You'll be glad for those trials because they have freed your hands up to grab that which is most necessary. Clinging more tightly to that which will save you, to that which has true value, is a good thing. And so you can't do that with hands full of things that don't have the value that the one thing does have. What James is saying that the purification of your faith is of such great value that whatever comes along in your life that refines that faith, that causes you to cling more tightly to Christ is something to count as joy. 
something to rejoice in because it's causing you to cling to Christ. The New American Commentary uh, mentions this uh, in the book of, this is its commentary, the New American Commentary says that James encouraged them to embrace their trials, not for what they were. Like James isn't saying, oh, be glad that things are going terrible for you. Be glad that you're suffering. He's not encouraging them to embrace their trials for what they are, but for what God could accomplish through them. James encouraged them to embrace their trials, not for what they were. It isn't saying, oh, I'm so glad these terrible things are happening to me. I'm so glad my life is difficult. I'm so glad I'm having these hard circumstances. That's insanity. That isn't the plea. But the plea is to see that, that there is something that God could be and is accomplishing through them. If, and it's as James says in his verse there at the beginning of, of chapter one, the, the verse we started off with. If this is something that causes you to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that is something worth 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 valuing, worth counting as joy. If the thing you treasure most that completes you and makes you whole, if that's secure with you, then even in the most serious of trials, you'll not find yourself lacking anything. It's a weird dichotomy. He's got various trials happening up in verse two. And then he says, you'll be lacking nothing in verse four. Well, to me, if you've got trials, you're obviously lacking something because you're lacking peace or you're lacking whatever would make the trial go away. But, but James is giving us something so big, an anchor so strong, so firm, so large that, that when the various trials, not if, but when the various trials of life come, that even in the midst of them, you can find yourself lacking nothing really. Because the thing that you have is of such great value, so firm and so strong that you end up lacking nothing. On down in the book of James, first chapter of James, verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And I read that and I think, James is, doesn't know what blessing is. <laughs> because blessing is to not have any trials. That's what, I, that's what we all think. You know, it's like blessed, the blessed man is the man who doesn't have anything going on wrong. But James says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, when he has, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So there again, you see him basing his hope on this eschatological, this end of it all, this final state future, this crown of life that is coming He's going, he's looking for the final wrapping up of all of these things. He places supreme importance to an individual's hope for their coming future. It is a glad future for those who are turning from their sin and trusting in Christ alone for their reconciliation. Quickly go with me, Romans chapter five. We're getting close to the, the end here, but I just want to, Paul, bring, Paul brings up this same argument. In, in his book to the letters of the Romans in chapter five and verse one it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, this future hope, the glory of God. But not only that, so here's where this relates. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings 
knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is Paul's point in Romans 5, that because of this reconciliation the Christian has with, with God through faith in Jesus Christ, wrath is no longer on the way for them because of their sin. But their sin, having been laid upon Christ on the cross, their sin is now forgiven. They have peace with God. And so therefore the sufferings of this life, they produce steadfastness, they produce uh, endurance, they produce character, that character then produces hope and hope that, that that reconciliation in the final event will not fail those who are his. So it brings me to the application. What is God doing in your life through this circumstance? I don't presume to have inside knowledge on what God's doing here. Uh, John Piper, one of his famous uh, quotes is saying that God in, in, in everything that's going on, God is doing 10,000 things in every circumstance of your life. And you're aware of maybe three at the most. God is doing 10,000 things through what's going on in our world right now. And we are aware of, I mean, I don't even know if a handful of, of all that is going on and what God is doing. So what is God doing in the current circumstances that are going on? I don't know all of them, but I, I, do, I am certain of this. God is in charge and he is working one of two realities in the lives of everyone watching this video right now. He's working one of two realities. He is either increasing the reasons for your judgment or he's drawing you closer to himself. He's doing one of two things. Either he's increasing the reasons for your judgment or he is drawing you closer to himself. Well, now temperature in the room just raised a little bit there at your house maybe, but here's what I mean by this. So who invented the snooze button, right? And I looked it up and you can't really tell. Uh, some, they, they, they say Lou Wallace, but then the Lou Wallace page says, no, it's not his fault. You know, it disappeared on a clock like in the 1950s. We started having this ability to wake up and hit the snooze for nine minutes. And uh, that's, you know, that we've just been stuck with, with the snooze button forever. Do you love the snooze button or do you hate it? I mean, honestly, like it depends on the morning. Like some mornings I love the snooze button because it's like I get, I'm going to take a few more minutes of sleep. But I also kind of hate the snooze button because sometimes it fails me and it makes me late. <laughs> So do you love or do you hate the snooze button? Some mornings it's the greatest thing ever to get a few minutes of extra rest, but other mornings it's the worst thing because you end up running late. We all know what the snooze button is. It's a way to put off a warning that's trying to get your attention. Your clock is saying, wake up, wake up. And you reach over and you say, no, not right now. 
wake up. Nah, not right now. I'm not, I'm going to snooze it. I'm not, I'm not going to wake up. Your alarm clock goes off and you either listen to it and respond or ignore it and snooze away. And that is often to your own detriment. What is one thing I'm certain God is doing in all of this? He's sending out wake up calls. What are you looking to, to give your life meaning and purpose? What are you resting in? Where is your hope placed? Are you right with Jesus? Are you at peace with God? Have your sins been forgiven? Have you confessed them to him? Have you accepted putting your faith in Christ's work alone on the cross for your sins? Is there distance between you and God because of your sinfulness? Do you think you have time to get things straightened out? Life is far shorter than any of us would like to admit. And it is subject to drastic change and immediate change at any moment. Yet here you are watching this video right now. And so if I could just try to press this in a little bit. You right now, you've had many invitations to church possibly. You have had many times thought of going and yet found yourself for some reason withheld. But, but here we all are right now. And I don't know, but my guess for you right now this morning is that God is calling out to you. God is sending off alarm bells. God is orchestrating all of these things so that, yes, you in this moment might be watching this video by this nobody in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. But that God has orchestrated this to press upon you. Where are you resting your hope? Where are you placing your trust when the stead, when the trials of this life are coming your way? Where, where does your exhale find itself? Are you, are you my call? Don't hit the snooze button. Don't, don't, don't say, oh, not right now, God, you know, okay. Just, I want, I, once things calm down in this life, then I'll, then I'll worry about those things. Once, once things get settled down, don't snooze. Don't snooze this button. Don't snooze this call to you right now. But listen, God is drawing you to himself. In this moment, as you listen to this, don't hit the snooze button. What does it mean then to wake up? It is to turn from that which displeases God called sin. It's to turn from that sin and to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. When God works that repentance and that faith in your life, you are made brand new. You are given a new view of life. You are given a new eschatological hope that the day is coming when you will be forever reconciled to him, where you'll be forever in union and in fellowship with him in the fullness of his joy. He goes to work when, when God adopts you into his family through this, making you his own child, he goes to work for your ultimate good. And so when he does this in your heart, you are then liberated. Like James says, to count everything joy when the various trials come your way. Because why? They're causing you to cling even tighter to him who is of the most value.
to Jesus Christ himself, to his gospel, to his reconciling work, taking sinners and making them children, taking rebels and making them family. This is the reconciling work that he is doing. Right now this morning, hear that call. Don't hit snooze. Turn to Christ in this moment. Your father, Jesus, is calling out right now. And my plea to every one of us is that we would take these trials, this moment, to cause us to cling closer to him. Don't snooze on Christ this morning. Run to him. Trust him. Rest in him. Let's pray. Father, cause us this morning to come to you. I pray that for everyone listening right here, right now, whether live or in replay even, that, Father, you would awaken our hearts to the joy that is in Christ. You would awaken our hearts to the glory of the gospel, that though this life so quickly and easily is turned upside down on us, there is an anchor. There is a solid, firm foundation to ground ourselves upon. And it is the reality, the firm truth of a Savior who has come to take sinners' sin upon himself, that they might be forgiven, to earn righteousness for them so that they could be credited righteousness and be in right standing with their Creator. And not just for a moment, but for eternity. Father, give us all eyes to see this more clearly. Increase our hope and our joy in it, God, that we may ground our lives upon it. And Father, yes, help us to count it joy when whatever comes our way, because it, as it frees our hands from clinging to the things of this world and clinging to what truly matters, causing us to cling to you, God, help us to count it joy, not because of what it is, it's still suffering, but to count it joy because of what it does. It purifies us and causes us to cling ever more tightly to you. Do that work, God, in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.